T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. When school administrators from around the nation gather and decide who among them is the best of the best, you might expect officials from big city, high-profile school districts to dominate. But if you want to find the best district superintendent of this year nationally, come here to northwest of Chicago to Arlington Heights and meet David Schuler. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this week is Dr. David Schuler, the superintendent of Township High School District 214. And if you're not in that district, you might not have heard of it, but 214 is the second largest high school district in the state. It has six high schools, including Buffalo Grove, Elk Grove, John Hersey High School, Prospect, Rolling Meadows, and Wheeling High School. David Schuler has been at the helm since 2005. He was an administrator in Wisconsin school districts before coming here. He also taught for a while. His doctorate is in educational leadership and policy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he is doing some innovative things here in the northwest suburbs. Now, we are recording this interview at District 214 headquarters, so technically I'm the guest this week. Um, David Schuler, thank you for having us in. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's talk about this award. It's bestowed by the AASA, the School Superintendents Association. AASA stands for American Association of School Administrators, but you hardly hear them use that anymore. Uh, but what makes uh, super, a superintendent one of the best? Oh, I think you have a great uh, school board that's very supportive, a wonderful community that values public education, and an incredible, incredible staff and outstanding kids. So so it's teamwork, of course, but uh, there have to be some things that run in common among, because there were, what, three other finalists? Uh, what What are the kinds of things that even the others are doing that kind of flows through? Yeah, I think the one thing that was consistent among the finalists and really all of the state superintendents of the year is that we really are looking at our students in public education beyond simply a test score. And we understand that it's our obligation to prepare our students for a world that's going to reinvent itself several times over the course of their work lives and a world that doesn't exist yet. And so, you know, to be focused solely on uh, how kids do on a standardized based test just is not going to prepare them for the world they're going to need to successfully navigate once they uh, once they graduate our high schools. Um, now, before we move on to the substance of, uh, of your award, you weren't just awarded accolades. A, a school won, too, didn't it? Yes, we did have um, uh, a number of our schools that were recognized. Uh, Elk Grove High School actually had the state principal of the year and last year's uh, teacher of the year. But even as part of your award, uh, they, they give an award to either your high school or the high school that uh, was in your district? So the superintendent of the year gets a scholarship that uh, she or he can award to schools in their district. And we've decided to use the resources to celebrate the students in all of our high schools. So we're going to take that overall amount and divide it up to provide scholarships for students in all of our schools, as well as my home high school um, in, uh, in central Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, now, you were 
president of AASA in the 2015-2016 year, and it, and it seemed uh, that you were in some ways helping the organization onto the path that you're taking here in, in, in 2014, redefining what ready for college and ready for the future means. Yeah, I love being a public school superintendent and having the opportunity to work with and collaborate with uh, the other 13,000 superintendents in the country was a lot of fun. Um, but Anybody who knows me knows I'm not just about having fun. I'm about the work. And so it was really important to me when, um, when I had the honor to lead AASA that we really did embark on a journey um, around this whole what does it mean to be ready work. Well, and simply put, what does it mean to be ready? Yeah, readiness varies based on the skill set of the individual. You know, uh, if we want to stay the greatest global economy the world has ever seen, we can't create a generation of graduates that all have the same skill set, the ability to take a test well. We need to support and affirm and empower our kids to learn differently, to support how they learn, and to demonstrate readiness in a variety of ways. You know, we need people in the manufacturing space. We need doctors. We need lawyers. We need teachers. And all of those individuals need different skill sets to be successful, and that should be supported and affirmed and valued. And now that brings us to the uh, Career Pathways Program here in the district. Um, we're told this was one of the main reasons for your winning the award. Uh, tell me a little bit about this program. Yeah, so every student in our district uh, identifies a career area of interest by the end of their freshman or sophomore year. We are not suggesting that every child who's 14 or 15 is going to decide what they want to do with the rest of their life. We're not suggesting that at all. But we're trying to create an educational experience that's relevant and engaging to every student. And we want them to think beyond high school graduation. Really, how many kids graduate from high school should not define our success. How our kids do after they graduate high school should define our success. And so we have created pathways where every student, regardless of their area of interest, from culinary arts to legal services to logistics, has an opportunity to pursue their pathway and have an external learning experience. Could be an internship, could be a youth apprenticeship, some sort of an external experience in that career area of interest to decide if it's what they want to do and a lot more times what they don't want to do. How awesome would it be for our kids to decide that they don't want to pursue a particular path and they save their family tens of thousands of dollars instead of your, a kid changing their major at the end of their junior year of college. Now, how do you expose the students to enough different paths or at least to know about the different paths so that they can say, okay, uh, this, is, this is where I want to, this is the dis direction I want to try. That is a great question. There's a lot of districts that have academy programs where kids have to decide what they want to do and they stay in that academy regardless of their success. We don't believe in that in District 214. We believe in a lot of on-ramps and off-ramps. So depending on a student's area of interest, they can switch uh, their area of interest. Um, but we do a lot of career interest surveys. We expose them to a lot of different careers. We could never do this without a supportive business community. We have over 100 business partners that assist in that work and providing those external learning experiences for our kids. So it really is a community-wide effort. And, you know, when we're getting closer to full employment in our economy, you know, we can help develop that ta talent pipeline for our employers in our communities. And, and that partnership, that's something that I know uh, the uh, City Colleges of Chicago, for example, uh, have been doing something like that. They've, they've, in fact, targeted various 
schools within their system for one of them is manufacturing, another's healthcare, another one is uh, info, information technology, hospitality is another mm. one, for example. And I guess more and more colleges are doing that. How widespread, or is this a growing thing, happening? I mean, how often do you see this happening in high schools? Well, we hope it's going to happen more and more. I've had the privilege of um, presenting uh, Redefining Ready in 38 states so far, and I didn't request any of those speaking engagements. It was the states hearing about what we were doing and asking us to come and share that message. So it's really resonating. And 16 states so far with their ESSA, Account Every Student Succeeds Act, Accountability Workbook, our new federal accountability workbook, have incorporated portions of Redefining Ready into their state plan. So we're making some huge, huge headway because I think people are seeing that we need a diverse workforce, we need a diverse economy, and we need to support our kids who, in whatever path they wanna choose, not every child should have a four-year degree, right? That doesn't mean they're less than, it just means it's different. And so we need to support all of our students having the ability to access um, the workforce and some post-secondary education. And so regardless of your strengths and where your skill sets are, we have a pathway for you. And I think it's going to really take root um, nationwide over the course of the next couple of years. Now, were you the pioneers in this? I, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, engaging in the research behind the work. And so I would call us pioneers um, because I think you know we've been able to develop. We call ourselves incubators of ideas in District 214. Um, we have resources. We're very supportive of the fact that we have resources. So we can create models that then can be replicated across the state and the country. And we're really proud of that. And our school board and our community views it as our contribution to the greater good to be able to share that story with others. Now, this is probably something that has a lot to do with your partners, but... Uh... And, and I know it was an issue for uh, for the city colleges. How do you choose which fields are going to be offered and, that, and where the jobs are needed? That is a great question. We use um, the Department of Commerce and Economic Workforce Development um, data. So our first pathway was in our greatest economic need in the community, and for us it was healthcare. And then we just built each of our pathways based on what was that next greatest area of need in our great, in our larger community. Hmm. Um, now, once you have these these partnerships, and you say you say you have forty four, right? Um, different paths. We have forty four different career pathways. Yep, sixteen area career clusters. Yep. Okay. Um, are there course corrections that have to be made along the way, and how do you how do you sense when one path may be starting to close and another one needs to be open? Another great question. We require all of our students to engage in reflections as part of their experiences, and then we use those reflections to help guide whether they need to transfer or switch to a different pathway or if they stay on that same pathway. So we had a, a female uh, STEM student, uh, science, technology, engineering, math student, doing an internship up at Buffalo Grove High School when we were redoing the pool. And I went up to her at the end of the uh, internship, and I said, so what did you think? And she said, I have never been so sure of anything in my, my entire life that I want nothing to do with electrical engineering. And I said, that is awesome. We just saved your family tens of thousands of dollars. Let's sit down now and do a course correction and figure out what's going to be a better fit. And she decided on uh, mechanical engineering. So that was a perfect example by exposing students to an experience that we can determine whether that is the right path or if they need to slide off and take a different path that interests them more. Now let's look at it from the other side, from the industry side. Um, are your partners coming to you 
and saying, ah, we're going to have a need for, you know, we're, we're starting to develop more and more of a need for this as opposed to that. Maybe we need to do a little less of one thing that we're doing now and maybe more of another. We have those conversations all the time. I had a conversation yesterday with actually a village manager, village economic development coordinator, and the local chamber of commerce about the next generation workforce needs uh, related to manufacturing and HVAC, plumbing, and electrical work. And so we developed a plan and a process for how we're going to really look to grow those programs and those pathways within our schools. And then, you know, it really is looking at community partnerships differently. Historically in schools, we would ask the community, the community would give, and we would say thank you. You know, that doesn't work in today's world anymore. We have to, as schools, really focus on what is our return on investment for those community partnerships. And so, you know, um, our students, um, that are in our app development class or a website development class. They partner with a small business in the community that can't afford to hire someone to do their own website or their app. And they work with that employer to develop a website or an app for that business. Well, that kid gets something to add to his or her portfolio that they would have never had. They get to work with an employer in a real employer-employee relationship, and that business owner gets something she or he couldn't have afforded in the past. That's what we're talking about when we talk about a real value add. And then those partners want to continue to partner with us because they can see the value. Now, I want to touch back on something that you, uh, that you brought up, and that is it's not just about how the kids do either here in school or at, uh, you know, in, in the, if they go to college or something like that. It's about how they do all the way going forward. How are you going to follow how your kids do and are doing? Yeah, so we believe very strongly in the cradle-to-careers pipeline, and we keep that S on careers because the millennials, we believe, are going to need multiple careers and experience multiple careers. So we have engaged in postgraduate surveys, postgraduate tracking. Um, As they get further away from high school, we think that's going to be more challenging to do. Um, We've got some thoughts and ideas. Our system is relatively new, so we've only got to have students that have graduated about three or four years out, um, and we've got really good handle on them right now. Um, We're going to have to just see if we can continue to keep those contacts with them over the course of the next four to ten years after that. Are you going to need some kind of grant? Oh, we'll be definitely accessing grants. To do a study? Well, you are listening to uh, News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Dr. David Schuler. He is superintendent of Township High School District 214 in the northwest suburbs and the winner of the National Superintendent of the Year Award. I want to talk to you a little bit about this district and, and the challenges that you are, are facing and, and overcoming in a lot of cases. Um, this is a very diverse district, I, I would say racially, culturally, and economically, right? We're very proud of the diversity of our district, and we believe we're a microcosm of the of the country. We have uh, two schools that have high levels of poverty that are very uh, racially diverse. We have two schools that are predominantly white, upper middle class, and we have two right in the middle. And so our philosophy is if we can build systems that work here, they can work anywhere. And so we're very proud of that. But now how do you meet the needs of such uh, different schools and populations with an overall program uh, like your Pathways. Yeah, we focus on every child, and we know that every child needs different 
um, supports at different levels. And so we're very, very intentional about individualizing and personalizing instruction and intervention. So, you know, a first generation student who may not have any of the uh, their family members that have gone to college, that child's experience is going to look a little different than someone whose entire family is PhDs. And it should. And I love the fact that we focus on every child and each child rather than just general all students. That sounds labor intensive. It, it, it probably takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of people with a lot of training. Um, are there enough resources to do this? And how do you get the resources to do this? Yeah, I, mean, I think it comes down to if you look at challenges and barriers or opportunities. And we always are looking at things as opportunities. And so we can always overcome anything if we're committed to doing it. And so, you know, with our first generation, it's a perfect example. You know, we take all of our first generation students on a college campus tour. And uh, we use some of our education foundation uh, dollars to support that because, again, we have an incredibly supportive community. Um, but we weren't seeing a huge increase in the number of our first-generation students attending college until we started bringing their parents with them on that college campus tour. And so what we recognize through that work is what we really need to do is change the trajectory of our children's dreams, but also their families' dreams. And so it is a much more intensive process, but if we want to break the generational cycles of poverty that exist in so many corners of our great nation, we have to do that. Um, how well do the arts survive in an environment where you're trying to do so much academically and, and um, in terms of vocation? Uh, how do you keep, how do you, do the arts, uh, are they as uh, robust here as they might be other places? I have such a big smile on my face because we are known and we love the fact that we're a fine and performing arts district. Uh, we have huge supporters of the arts and the arts are pathway. We have a lot of students that pursue pathways related to music or fine and performing arts. And in fact, we just hired two weeks ago a fine arts career advisor whose job it is to work with students who are interested in the arts and look at all the opportunities for them. Uh, we've launched a, uh, a TV show uh, that we're in production with right now where our students are renovating a house in downtown Arlington Heights and our mass communications and broadcasting kids are filming that uh, in, in kind of like a high school flip. And we're going to put together um, a series of 9 to 12 uh, episodes that then we're going to pitch to TV stations. So the arts in District 214 are unbelievable. Our music, um, our drama programs are off the charts amazing. Well, since we're on the subject of money, I should talk to you about what's going on at the state level. First off, if my estimation is correct, you should be either already getting or about to get the money uh, that would be resulting from the uh, the new, well, uh, you, you can tell me whether it's improved or not, uh, <laughs> school aid formula. And how, first off, is, is high school district uh, 214 doing? Yeah, we're, uh, hold, we're being held harmless, so we're not really seeing a huge either increase or decrease of funds. I think our uh, overall increase this year is a little under $20,000. But um, I would say the evidence-based funding formula, you know, there was a, spent a lot of time putting that formula together, and it's designed really to, to address the inequities in the state funding formula, and we are very supportive of that work. I think our concern is whether or not the formula will continue to be funded, um, and if there's going to be other offsets to those dollars, which would really be unfair to the, the intent and the spirit 
of trying to equalize funding across the state. Uh, so while it doesn't have a huge impact on our district and you would assume we would be advocating for more resources and you know every district kind of fighting for themselves, uh, that's not what we're about in 214. We're about the greater good. We're about implications at the state and the national level. So this formula should equalize the inequity in funding across the state, and we're very supportive of it as long as it's funded. And we have done some programs on that issue. And uh, the one thing that I have been uh, impressed with is that uh, when I have talked to district superintendents from different areas, there has been that unanimity among the the affluent districts and the the, the poorer districts saying, no, we're all in this together. And so there was not a Chicago is getting too much, therefore we want the whole thing to be ripped apart. Uh, that, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm not hearing it really from any district. I, that, that warms my heart because it really goes to what we're all about as public school superintendents, and it should be in improving the greater good for all public school children. And, uh, and so I think we're all committed to that work together, and it's about all kids and every kid. Well, now I have to bring up another issue that's uh, getting some play, and that has to do with the fact that there is a plan now to shift the cost of uh, teacher pensions, at least the regular teacher pensions, away from the state, which has paid for it for every district except Chicago uh, for decades and decades, uh, back to the local districts. Um, I know a lot of Democrats and Republicans say it's only fair, but this is going to be an issue when it comes to the taxpayers in areas like this, isn't it? It definitely will be an issue. And I would just go back to, you know, there are three funding sources for the pensions, employees, employers, and the state. The employees of the state of Illinois, teachers uh, and others that contributed to the teacher's retirement system have never missed a payment. The employers, the school districts across the state have never missed a payment. That third leg of the stool have missed a lot of payments. So now to shift that obligation that they had to employees and employers really does seem to be unfair. Um, that being said, I also think people should take a look at how the accounting works I mean, the state and TRS have never missed a payment to a retiree, right? So to have to create an accounting model that, uh, that funds all future obligations seems odd to me. You know, we're not a private corporation. It's not like the state of Illinois is going to all of a sudden disappear, right, like a private company. So as long as the teacher's retirement system can continue to make all the, the obligations for a given year, and there's, I don't see or I haven't seen anything that says they're not going to be able to do that, I just wonder how big of an issue it is currently versus kind of on paper, that bigger issue. Uh, is the fact that it, at least according to some of the proposals, could, could be um, gradual, does that uh, ease the, uh, the pain or the, or, the, or the concern? Yeah, I mean, I think any relief, if there is going to be a shift, uh, would be helpful for us to plan. I mean, we use an 11-year financial planning model looking five years in the past, the current year, and five years out. So any sort of major shocks to the system does play a huge role because we do want to be financially prudent. We don't want to be in a position where we have to cut 10 or $20 million in a given year. You know, if we can engage in cost containment efficiency conversations annually, it allows us to not have to cut to the bone 
you know, or cut a program, but rather just nuance and look at retirements and, and attrition to realize any sort of uh, cost efficiencies. Uh, I want to turn to another issue that might be a, a, in the shock to the system uh, category, but socially, and that's how is the school system dealing with issues like sexual harassment and bullying, which is getting a lot of uh, attention and a lot of talk, but what's happening at the, uh, at the ground level? Yeah, I am so proud of our students, parents, and staff. We've um, embarked for about a year and a half on a really big bystander behavior campaign, you know, a see something, say something uh, campaign where we really encourage our students to engage in those conversations with their peers and tell people when they're getting close to the line or when they're crossing the line. And it has been so incredible to see the outpouring of support from our students. Uh, we had a, I know this is going to shock you, but so, superintendents sometimes have to make weather-related closing decisions on snow <laughs> days. And sometimes we get some nasty, nasty comments from, uh, from individuals in our community. Um, and it's really cool because as kids will be like, I need a day off, you know, the snow is coming. And we don't get a lot of those, but we'll get a couple. You'll have the other students say, hey, you're getting really close to crossing the line here and being inappropriate. And so it's really, really awesome to see our students engaging. Uh, and we had a situation a couple weeks ago where a student posted something that wasn't necessarily appropriate um, in a in a group text, and four of the kids immediately called, talked to the school uh, administration. They talked to their parents. They called the local law enforcement. It's exactly what should happen, you know. And so I'm really proud of our work. We're not we're not perfect, but we're really focusing on the culture of the school, making sure kids feel supported. I will tell you that since we embarked on um, on this career pathway work where people and kids understand why they're going to school and they see that relevance, our attendance has increased, behavior has decreased significantly, and overall achievement has increased. And do you feel that, uh, that students who might feel they are being either harassed or, or, or bullied are feeling comfortable enough to come forward and say that? I certainly hope so. I'm sure not every child feels that way, but we do our best to try and ensure that they are, we are we are a comfortable um, environment, uh, approachable. Our uh, student services staff, um, and we would just think we encourage everyone. You know, if you have any concerns, you have any issues, please come forward. Our job is to help you. I guess the last thing I want to ask about is uh, what kind of lessons uh, uh, are being taught by our by our political system, and I don't just mean what's going on in Washington, I mean, also in Springfield. And I, I don't know if there is a, is, a, is a public service government track in your, uh, in, in your uh, pathways, but are the ways that uh, our politics are going where there's so much enmity, so much conflict and, and insult, is that turning kids off of wanting to be in government or wanting to run things? You know, I think it would have turned my generation off completely. Um, that's not this generation of kids. This generation of students is all about being engaged. So I actually see it really firing them up um, and getting them, and not from a uh, not from a partisan perspective, but from a dialogue discourse and wanting to do something. And that's been really, really fun on, on, and on every side of the, the aisle to see students really want to get involved. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm thrilled with it. We do have a public administration pathway, and we were talking with some municipalities a couple weeks ago about them providing internships. They're going to start doing that this summer. So I'm really proud of that work. Um, but I also think that's why it's important for us to have our civics you know, requirement to talk about civil 
civil discourse. It's why we have a requirement for community service so that our students understand the importance of giving back to the local community and being good community stewards and, and community partners. And are, are you getting enough applicants for uh, for the public? <laughs> the public. You can always use a couple more. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, I, I w let me just ask you very quickly. We only have about thirty seconds left. But what's the next? What's what's the next thing? The hurdle that you have to get over. We're going to carry this career pathways in reading, fighting, ready nationally. We're going to make sure four years when we all have to submit our new workbooks at least 40 of the 50 states incorporated into their state plans. Well, thank you very much. That is the High School District 214 Superintendent David Schuler. Thank you for spending the half hour with us. Thank you. Uh, to our listeners, if you want a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I will be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you will be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.